Oh, good morning. You can say it back if you'd like. We're allowed to now. Good morning. Yeah, it's good to see you all. If you have kids, and then we do have kids' work happening just now at the back, so if and this is a good time for them to head towards the back to do that. You can go towards Hannah, who's waving at the side there. We are in our last week of our summer series looking at the theme of restoration. And we've been reflecting on the ways that God is inviting us to join in his restoration work, both in us and also through us for our city. We've looked at the themes of rest, we've looked at work, we've looked at the mind, we've looked at the body, we've looked at relationships, and today we are looking at the soul. And I want to suggest that there are three things which are core to the restoration of the soul. Solitude, sacrifice, and surrender. That's the three S's, so hopefully a bit memorable. We're going to jump right in, and we're going to read from Matthew chapter 26 from verses 24 through 27. So you can read along with me if you've got a Bible, or it should be on the screen as well, I think. So it's Matthew 16 from verse 24. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what they have done. I wonder, has anyone ever been asked the question, how is it with your soul? Has anyone ever asked you that? It's a really intense question, isn't it? Like with the direct eye contact, how is it with your soul? There's a few times where people have asked me that question, and I'm not really sure how to respond. Usually if they ask me, I end up kind of going, well, and avoid all eye contact. Well, that's the soul. Yeah, I think think my soul's okay. (laughs) But we use the word often, don't we? And we don't necessarily know if we know what it means. Um, We use the word soul in culture. It's even a genre of music. We understand that there's something spiritual about the soul. We know that... Maybe there's things we can do to feed the soul and things that we could do to do damage to the soul. But what does it actually look like for us to have an understanding of the soul? What does scripture tell us that the soul is? Well, there's a definition by uh, theologian and writer Ruth Haley Barton, and she's written a book called Strengthening the Soul of Your Leadership. And she defines the soul as we find it in scripture, and she says it like this. The soul is the very essence of you, that God knew before he brought you forth. This is the you that exists beyond any role you play, any job you perform, any relationship that seems to define you, or any notoriety or success that you may have achieved. Now she goes on to say, it is the part of you that longs for more of God than you have right now. The part that may even now be aware of missing God amidst the challenges of life. Which is a good definition. So the soul is this combination of two parts of ourselves. It is the essence of who we are before we're measured by anything external. And it's also the part of us that's hardwired to know the presence of God. To the extent that maybe we might even, through the soul, understand places where we have distanced ourselves from God. So with that definition in mind, understanding it that way, I do want to ask all of us that question this morning. How is it with your soul? I'm not going to give anyone any intense eye contact as I say it. But how is it with your soul? Not how's your work, not how's the family, not how's the latest hobby that you've been doing, 
which is the way that we might respond if someone asks how you're doing. <laughs> but how is it with your soul, right at the heart of who you are and as you relate to God? I'm going to read out some statements which come later in the same book I just quoted, which are ways of kind of getting the temperature of how your soul is. And so I'm just going to read them out, and I wonder if any of them resonate with you. Uh, I'll just read them slowly. I notice that I'm going through the motions of the Christian life. I'm aware of a nagging sense that something is not quite right. I find myself rushing from one thing to the next without time to really pay attention to myself. I'm tired and I don't really know how to get rested. The time off work doesn't seem to help. I am aware of underlying irritability. I can't stop working even when I know I need to. I increasingly give in to escapist behaviors like overeating, binging, TV series, substance abuse, shopping, spending, pornography. Heavy statements, aren't they? <laughs> but I wonder if any of these stand out to us. I wonder if any of these points resonate with us. What I've noticed in the last year is it's been quite an exposing time, hasn't it? It's been quite exposing in us. It's exposed my motivations, and it's particularly challenged places in me where I look for purpose and calling. And some of that has been really good. It's focused me and sharpened why I do what I do and who I am. But at times, I've also noticed a tendency towards some of the things that I was describing. Being drawn to read another book or start another TV series rather than just being present where I am. I find that I can get easily, more easily irritated with the people that are closest to me in the last year. I find that I'm often in work mode and find it hard to switch off just in case someone messages me and I need to respond to it quickly. And I can find at times that my spiritual life isn't as deep as I'd like it to be. Maybe you can relate to some of that too. Maybe that has been exposed in you in this last year too. If anyone has been keeping up with um, Marvel TV series, anyone watch Marvel stuff? I wonder if maybe more of the evening cried. Just me? One? Yes, Wes. Great. I appreciate oh, Lincoln as well, very good. So um, I appreciate the irony of me talking about TV series after just describing it as an escapist thing, but we're just, we're just going to go with it. So the, there's a TV series called Loki, which has just come out, and it's genuinely excellent. And um, it follows a villain in the Marvel world called Loki, and the TV series is kind of exploring uh, some of his motivations, what makes Loki tick. And you discover through it that that right at the heart of who he is, he's determined to discover what his glorious purpose is. That's the language he uses, like, I need to know what my glorious purpose is. It's why he tricks people. It's why he says he'll do one thing and then does another. And it's why you spend the whole time, watch, whenever you watch one of these films, guessing what he's going to do next, because it's really unpredictable. Right at the heart of who he is, he's trying to understand what he's for, what his purpose is. And in this TV series, he discovers that throughout the course of the series. He discovers that that is the case, that that's what he's been doing. And it causes him to stop in his tracks because he realizes that he's hurt so many people. He's betrayed so many people in the process. And he's justified so many awful actions because he's been determined to try and get at this glorious purpose. It's deep stuff for some comic book TV series, isn't it? But I wonder if so much has been stripped away from us in the last year as the things which have been so purposeful for us 
that aren't quite the same or haven't been the last year, that it has also stopped us in our tracks, that it has exposed the places where we find our identity, success and satisfaction in our work life, maybe one of them maybe, meaningful connection and relationships, exotic holiday retreats. <laughs> Each of those has been changed in this last year, haven't they? They've been shaped differently and it stopped us in our tracks. These places, which could be places of identity for us, have shifted. Those exchange a dynamic and rewarding work life with um, spending every day in your spare bedroom on a screen. <laughs> we exchanged engaging community and relationships with Zoom fatigue for the last year, didn't we? And we exchanged exotic holiday treats with walking around the meadows for the hundredth time with a cup of takeaway coffee. Not quite the same uh, kind of reward and sensation from that, is there? And it has been an exposing time. Who am I without this defining stuff? And the whole point of this sermon series has been to look at restoration because there's a good and right understanding of purpose in each of those places that we talked about through summer, of our works, of our bodies, of our minds. To understand those places restored is so important and right at the heart of how God wants us to live. But I want to just name this morning that there's something foundational that we need to grasp, a lens through which we understand the rest of these places of purpose and identity in us. Before we drive ourselves back into busyness and re-engage with old habits that we'd formed previously, we need to know our why. We have to be able to name what our glorious purpose is, to, to grab the language of Loki in this case, in Jesus. We need to be able to track whether our lives line up to the heart of God and who he's called us to be. And I think the habit of taking stock is maybe one of the most important habits we could begin to form as we come out at the end of this time. It's the spiritual discipline of solitude, which would be a language you might be familiar with. And I appreciate that, as I said that, some of you are like, solitude? I've just spent a year in isolation. Why would I want to spend any more time on my own? But there's a big difference between isolation and solitude. Isolation is something we've experienced in this last year lots, isn't it? Where we are disconnected and forced to spend time away with others. But solitude is where we consciously choose to presence ourselves to ourselves and to God. So what might it look like for us to practice solitude with God? The key is to give yourself plenty of space to do that, to be attentive to yourself and to God. So find a way that works for you. But it could be something like going for a walk in nature. It could be journaling. It could be sitting with a cup of coffee. But there are probably some things that don't help with solitude. If you have your phone in front of you, that's probably not going to be very helpful. If you are in a busy environment like a cafe or in a family sitting room with people running around, or if you have stuff playing in your ears, even though you might feel like you've got 20 podcasts to catch up on, that kind of stuff's probably not going to help you be very present to yourself and to God. So find a place that helps you to be present without distraction. Because when we find that, Ruth Haley Barton, I'm quoting her a lot, but it's an excellent book. She says that this kind of attentiveness, solitude, this kind of attentiveness helps us stay on the path of becoming our true self in God. A self that is capable of an ever-deepening yes to the call of God on our lives. A self that is capable of an ever-deepening yes to the call of God in our lives. That's, that's what I want. And it begins by practicing solitude. 
And so with that in mind, I want to now take us back to Matthew chapter 16, the passage we read at the start. And I think it's important for us to know as we, as we reflect on it that this isn't a passage that Jesus is preaching to Christ. He's not standing here declaring this is what it means to follow me to those who don't know what it means. Actually, this passage is when he's walking with and journeying with his close disciples, people who've known him for years. So it's in that context. And I want you to imagine that they've just finished traveling quite a long journey and they've sat down, they set up camp. If you've watched The Chosen, you might be able to visualize a bit more of them around this fireplace chatting to each other. And Jesus asked them the question, You've been, we've been traveling lots, and lots of people have talked about me. Who have they said that I am? And the disciples begin to respond around this fireplace, and one of them says, well, some have said John the Baptist, and others have said Elijah. And there's a pause, and then Jesus says, and who do you say that I am? And you can imagine, like, silence as someone's trying to figure out the confidence to speak. And then Jesus, uh, and Peter speaks up and says, you're the Christ. You're the one that we've been waiting for for centuries. And Jesus affirms it, that God has revealed that to you. But then just a few verses later in the verses we were just reading, we discover that they don't really actually know what that means. They don't get what it means for the Christ to come. For them, it means worldly success, power, grasping at the authority that they believe is rightfully theirs. It's accolading success for them. And Jesus recognizes that. And so as he often does in his teaching, he then gives them, presents two options to them. He says, there are two paths in front of you. One path is the pursuit of the success of the world for our own gain. To pursue power and authority and accolade. That's, that's one path. But in the process, you will lose your soul. It's not the way of Jesus. And then the other path is the way of Jesus, where we lay down that desire for success and power and to promote ourselves and instead live a life of daily sacrifice, laying ourselves down. And counterintuitively, Jesus says, this is the way that you will find restoration for your soul. This is a place of healing and restoring for you. And what's abundantly clear when you read it, and also you see, because Jesus is referred to in Luke's gospel as well, this isn't just like a once-for-all thing. It's not like you set yourself off in the path and it's default and they're good to go. It's a daily decision. In fact, Luke's gospel says that explicitly. Every day you have to make the choice to pick up your cross and follow Jesus. Every day requires us to choose the path that we're traveling on. Jesus says that the path of restoration requires sacrifice, and surrender. If you think about it, and I know I've already said this, it's counterintuitive, isn't it? But the idea that restoration, sacrifice, surrender all fit in the same sentence, we don't really think that should be the case, right? You wouldn't think if someone was going to talk about restoration, they would then go on to talk about sacrifice and surrender. But that's, that's what we find here. And so I just want to pick apart two of them, the sacrifice first. So Jesus calls to his disciples, he says, take up your cross and follow me. In other words, be willing to die to all of the self-centered stuff that might motivate you and tempt you each and every day. And so the question I have for us is, what does that look like for us? What do we maybe need to die to again today? What is the no that we might need to say, the thing that we need to lay down as we pursue Jesus? I wonder that for some of us here, there is a big no that we really need to seriously consider, that when we take, if we were to take that time in solitude, if we were to reflect on where we are and how we related to God, we'd realize there's a big distance there. 
And actually, as we reflect on our lives, we would see that there's not actually all that much that differentiates us from the life of anyone else around us. That we spend our money the same way, we talk the same way, that we don't pray, that we don't read scripture. There's nothing which really defines us as being people who have laid down our lives in pursuit of Jesus. And if that is you, then I would just want to reiterate Jesus' invitation to you afresh this morning. He says, pick up your cross, lay yourself down, and come follow me. For whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. That is the offer. And I just want to say, as I'm, as I, as I'm ref, I've reflected on this, and as I've read the words of Jesus, it stands out to me that Jesus' words are often confronting and convicting, but they're never condemning. They're confronting and convicting, but they're never condemning. Because sometimes when Jesus teaches, it really comes up right against the stuff of your, in your life, doesn't it? It really stands against some of what you've been doing. But it's never to keep you in that place. It's never just to tell you, you're stuck, nothing's going to change. It's always with the invitation to come and follow him. It's always with him then drawing alongside us and moving us forward. And so if that is how, where you find yourself, then know that this is an invitation from Jesus. It's not to keep you there. It's to draw you forward. And then for most of us, as we think about sacrifice, I actually wonder that Jesus' challenge in this passage is a bit like the challenge he gives to the disciples. And it's a good bit more subtle because he says to the disciples, you think you know what it means to follow me, but in reality, you're actually after your own success and comfort. Could you imagine, back to that fireplace scene again, that Jesus has just said that. That's like a proper mic drop moment, and all the disciples would be in silence, like, what? <laughs> what have we missed? How have we missed this? The disciples didn't realize that they were traveling the wrong path. We make yes and no decisions every day, don't we? We, we make some that are completely inconsequential. We say yes to a flat white, and we say no to a cappuccino. We say yes to the clothes we're wearing, and no to the rest of the clothes in our cupboard. But just as subtly, we make yes and no decisions every day which have far greater implications. We can say yes in the moment to a commitment which keeps us away from our regular weekly activities like community. We say yes to the appeal of climbing the career ladder maybe, and in the process could say no to uh, a work-life balance and to having a life which sustains rhythms of following Jesus. We say yes to a mortgage, which maybe ties up all of our finances. It means we say no to being generous with the money that God's given us. We say yes to a diary free of commitments. And the process of that, we say no to a life lived journeying with others. And the reason I give these examples is I think actually maybe some of these are the most tempting that we've experienced in the last year. When you think about it, it the Edinburgh mark, property market has exploded in the last year, hasn't it? <laughs> Everyone is aware of that as people have been determined to try and find a bigger, better house. This is the year where we've seen, and we are seeing companies find movement of employees at record rates. And this is a year where we haven't had to really keep any habit-forming commitments. This, we're only now having to get used to going back into the building to be at church together, right? We haven't had to do that. And these yes and no choices are probably tempting us in more unparalleled ways than ever before. Now, as I say that, what I'm not saying is that it's bad to pursue a promotion. That's, that could be totally what God is leading you towards. And I'm not saying that sometimes God calls us to make commitments, which means that we're not available to some of church life. And it doesn't mean that we shouldn't have a home or a mortgage which allows us to be family and be hospitable with others. But sacrifice 
in these places is being willing in an instant to lay those pursuits down when they get in the way of us following Jesus. It is being willing, able to discern when those things that we've pursued get in the way of our pursuit of God and actually are doing damage to the soul. Sacrifice sometimes means we have to make hard decisions and difficult no's so that we are capable of that ever-deepening yes to the call of God on our life. Andy Wright, who's a brilliant theologian, quotes in this passage, he says this, in every generation there are, it seems, a few people who are prepared to take Jesus seriously at his word. What would it look like if you were one of them? It's a good question, isn't it? And that leads me to just the last point I want to make, which is around surrender. Restoration of the soul happens in a place of surrender. Because the promise that Jesus offers us is if we choose to lay ourselves down, that he will restore us, that he will give us life, and that we'll find life in all of his fullness. It is Jesus who promises to do that work. That's not on us. It's not on us to do the right things in order to try and rebuild our own souls. And the question I think I have for us is, just do we believe that that's the case? Do we believe that Jesus can do that? Do you believe that that's what Jesus is offering us? We have to believe that Jesus has a better grasp of the stuff that's good for us and is restoring to the soul. So I just want to encourage us to consider that, that, to encourage you to trust that Jesus has a better way for your life. And it might not always feel better at the time by our standards, but it is better by his standards. And surely the creator of the world has better standards of what a good life is than ours, right? Surely the better life that our creator offers us is better than the life that we think is best for us. I want to just finish by reading out Psalm 23 as a prayer, as a way of us engaging with this act of surrender. Because it is a beautiful response to what we've just been reading, isn't it? That it's the good shepherd who promises to restore us. As we trust in his leading, and we trust that he is good, and we, as we trust that he's got the best way for our lives, that he promises to do that restoring work in us. And so as I read it, and I'm going to read it slowly, you might even just want to take a moment to consider what, is the, what are the things that I maybe have said yes to that I should have said no to what are the things, the habits that I've formed in my life that are getting in the way of my pursuit of Jesus that are doing damage to my soul? And in this moment, as I read them, choose to lay them down again, to invite God to be in the midst of them and to lead us through them. So Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Let me pray for us.
God of restoration, we come before you at the end of this series as we have reflected on the ways that you want to bring restored understanding to us in each area of our lives. And we choose afresh right now to surrender to you, to trust that you have a far better plan for our lives than we ever possibly could, that you know what is best for us, you know what is restorative. And I pray for each of us here, for each of my friends, I pray for the strength to to make choices which might feel hard at the time, but which we know you're calling us to so that we might know restoration in each of our own souls. Would you strengthen us where we feel weary, where we feel tired? And for any of us who particularly resonate with the stuff that I was reading at the start, the places where we realize that, um, that there is something not quite right in the heart of us right now, God, I pray that you would begin to do a healing work in us, even right now. Would you be restoring us in your power? We thank you for this invitation to follow you, and we choose to commit to it afresh. Amen.